are listening to Africa Rights Talk, a Center for Human Rights podcast series hosted by Tatenda Musinahama. Welcome to the conversation. In today's episode, we have Ms. Patience Mungwari from the Center for Human Rights, and she works at the Women's Rights Unit. I'd just like her to just introduce herself and the nature of her work. Thank you very much for having me. So as you rightly say, I work in the Women's Rights Unit at the Center for Human Rights. And what we do in the Women's Rights is generally to protect and promote the rights of women and girls on the African continent. And we do this by monitoring the implementation of the protocol to the African Charter on Human and People's Rights on the Rights of Women in Africa. And one of the ways that we monitor its implementation is through training state parties through the protocol to report on how they have implemented the rights contained in the protocol. And then the other thing that takes a bit of our time is that we support the mandate of the Special Rapporteur on the Rights of Women in Africa, and we support her by doing research on her behalf and also providing her with any other technical support that she needs. And also, generally, we try to be responsive to the emerging issues that are happening on the African continent. And so you find that we've done a lot of research and advocacy work as well as capacity building work on issues such as child uh, marriages. Currently, we also have an Age with Rights campaign looking at uh, the protection of the rights of older women on the African continent. And also, we do a lot of work in South Africa around ending gender-based violence. What challenges are women facing in the protection of of their rights, particularly in the face of the COVID-19 pandemic? So, Tatenda, the COVID pandemic has um, affected uh, women and girls in a number of ways that undermine uh, their rights. And I must say, of course, that the COVID pandemic itself was unprecedented and so no one was prepared to deal with the pandemic of this magnitude. And so you find that state parties have had to respond to the pandemic using uh, guidelines uh, provided by the World Health Organization. And some of these guidelines have required that states take very stringent measures, such as the lockdown of nations. So we've seen nations closing their borders and also really locking people in their homes. And of course, this restriction of movement has a lot of impact on on the welfare of women and girls. So just on the very basic level, um, and I'm sure you might also be um, experiencing this, that when we are locked down, uh, it, it really interrupts our life as usual. So the routines that we set for ourselves are really interrupted. But also even... Um, the social support networks that we've developed for ourselves to be able to cope with uh, different uh, needs of our families, of ourselves, have really been shut off. So, for example, you find that a lot of women call, uh, take their children to daycare centers, even if they're not working, but to allow them to do work in the house and so forth, or even to go somewhere else. But those daycare centers are closed. Women go to church to meet with friends, to, you know, just move out from the home, all these things have really been shut down. So so the, the usual support systems that women have, the usual coping mechanisms that they have, they do not have them. And also what has happened with the lockdown is that women have uh, lost their jobs. 
some women are the heads of households themselves or they're the breadwinners in their homes. And staying at home has meant that they can't go to work. Some women are also self-employed and and so because of the lockdowns, they have really been uh, impacted in their ability to take care of themselves, to put food on the tables. And, and if you think about it, in South Africa, women are the, the large component of the most vulnerable forms of employment that we see. So, for example, women are domestic workers. They are informal traders, they are sex workers, they are cross-border traders, all these things they can't do now with the lockdowns. And so it has really, really impacted on their ability to look after themselves. And then, of course, the other thing is that the lockdowns have come with uh, limitations around accessing social services and basic needs. So, you know, going to the hospital to collect your ARVs, your contraception, it's now limited. Of course, on paper, we know that you are allowed to go out and access these services. But what we found on the ground is that there is conflicting information around what is it that you can go out to do and how do you go about doing it. But also the presence of police and the army on the streets in itself is a deterrent for many people going out, but also the very real fear of actually catching the virus is also something that has made people stay at home and not be able to access uh, these basic services. If you think about rural women, there are usual forms of fuel such as firewood they cannot go out to collect. Water is usually not in the home, so they have to go outside to collect uh, water for their households. And so all these things have really been impacted by, by the lockdown. What we are also seeing and struggling with as women is the increased burden of care that has come with the lockdowns. So women are usually the ones who do the unpaid care work in the home. So cleaning the house, taking care of everyone in the home, making sure they are bathed, they are fed, and they are occupied, especially children. It really, this burden has really fallen on women most of the time. And for some of them, they get some relief when the children go to school, when the husband goes out to work, but now everyone is closed in in the home. And so the relief that women previously had when they either went out to work themselves or the family itself is out is no longer there. So 24-7, you are locked down with your family and you have to do the duties of care. And so that has really placed an additional burden on women. They also complain now about how they have to homeschool their children, which is something they never had to do. If you were not a homeschooling parent, your your children will be at school. And, you know, um, that has also created extra burdens on, on women. And for some of them, they still have to continue to do their work. So if your work allows you to your formal employment allows you to work from home. You still have to do that work. You still have to take care of the family. And now you have the added responsibility of homeschooling. So those are some of the challenges. But I guess the greatest one that would be really remiss if we don't talk about it is the issue of gender-based violence. So women have been saying that the lockdowns are not safe for them because they are now sometimes locked up with the perpetrators of the violence. 
So it could be a spouse, it could be a family member who is violent, and now they have to stay with them 24-7. They also can't come out to... To, to go and report these violations. And also parents who are co-parenting and not living together, there's been an increase of, of reports where one party withholds the children, does not allow them to go back home. And so those are some of the challenges that women have really been facing as a result of the lockdown. So do you think the government is doing enough in its planning and implementation to reduce the risk of the cases of gender-based violence? Well, I, I think the government is trying. I cannot say that they are doing enough. I mean, as long as there's still one person who has failed to get help when they are in, in, in a crisis situation, then we think that the government is not doing enough. But I must say that, um, as I said in the beginning, this pandemic was unexpected and also its, its spread was quite fast. So governments were not prepared to cope with such a pandemic. But I think what the pandemic has done is that it has also traveled along the fault lines of uh, social injustice to, to, to really expose some of the weaknesses in our governance system. So, so governments have really been exposed in some ways, uh, but the South African government, I think it is one of the, the governments that really tried to react very swiftly to try to mitigate the impact of, of the virus on the population. So, so we saw the government locking down the country. We saw them also trying to to, to give uh, social relief in times of distress grants. Uh, we also saw them trying to facilitate workers getting UIF, uh, the Unemployment Insurance Fund. We've also seen uh, the government through the Solidarity Fund trying to assist families with food parcels. And also, of course, we have an, uh, a national gender-based violence command center that has been trying to to field calls of uh, domestic disturbances in an effort to curb the impact of of the COVID crisis. But is that enough? Well, um, I, I certainly think not. Because if you look at all these interventions, you see that most of them have been having problems in, in their implementation. And so the desired goal of the projects have not been met. If you think about the social relief of distress grant, if you were reading the newspapers, you will know that still they had said that this grant would be disbursed to recipients by the 15th of May. And up to today, which is almost the end of May, uh, only 10 people have received the, the grant. And these 10 people apparently were a pilot uh, for, for the disbursement of these funds. So the question is, we are over 60 days into the lockdown. Where are people getting resources to feed themselves if they can't work anymore? And so two months later, they have not received the distress grant. I think that is very concerning. And so while they, on paper, there are interventions that the government has done, in practice, the rolling out of these interventions have been problematic. If you look at 
the the food parcels as an ex, as another example the center working with other civil society organizations has been part of uh, civil society organizations that um have been distributing food so we were involved in the distribution of food parcels and mamelodi um and i'll say to you what what we saw there was quite uh disturbing in terms of uh, some of the dire situations in which people are living in but also when you look at the food parcel itself of course you start to raise questions around is it enough for the families that it is being given to um when you look at its contents you also ask yourself who decided what should be in these in these packages did they take into consideration the the varied nature of households in south africa their dietary needs and so forth so you start to ask those kinds of questions and also you you are worried about whether it is enough for the millions of people or the millions of households in south africa that actually need the grant are people getting it on time and also uh, the question that has been on the top of my mind which i'm also have not been able to get real answers to is is this going to be a once off so this box of food that we gave this family in may is it going to be the the, the totality of the food parcels or are they going to be getting this parcel at the end of every month i don't know but it really raises questions around the adequacy of the government intervention we've also seen the same problems with the unemployment insurance fund uh so uif is supposed to be an insurance fund for for people who have been working and contributing to uif so as an employee you some of your money is taken a certain percentage of your salary is taken to contribute to uif your employer also has to contribute a certain amount uh to uif and they have to register you so um now when people are no longer at work despite that they have been contributing to uif they suddenly learn that well the employer had not registered them for example but also for the many many thousands of women the kinds of work that they were doing do not necessarily make them recipients of the uif grants so so it's not just employment such as domestic work but also if you think of retail a lot of women who are employed in in the retail sector are casual workers so they don't qualify for for uh, uif grants as an example so we've seen some of those kinds of weaknesses and then of course one group of women that has been particularly particularly vulnerable and that has kind of been left out in these interventions are migrant women so uh, migrant women do not have the necessary id document that is needed to access the social relief of distress grant they are also being targeted to not receive the food parcels in communities so we are seeing again an uh, the rearing of uh, the xenophobia problem that we've always had simmering in the country so because you are migrant you are not able to to access the food parcels and of course usually you are not able to access the uif fund 
And then with regards to gender-based violence, uh, more specifically, we have a functioning command center, which has been running for some time now. So it had, didn't start as a result of the COVID uh, pandemic, but this command center allows you to either call in a, a toll-free number, which you can call, or you send an SMS or a WhatsApp to a particular number, and the command center is supposed to be able to direct you, to assist you. So if you need the police, they're supposed to dispatch the police. If you're in need of ambulance services, then you should be getting that. But the problem that we've always had with this is that it doesn't use geolocation functions. So, for example, if you're in the middle of a call and you maybe the perpetrator walks in and you have to put that call down, they are not able to trace where the call came from and then still dispatch the police to you. So you really have to be on the call long enough to give them all the necessary information for them to be able to intervene. But of course, when people are locked together now with the perpetrator, I think it would it is safe to imagine that sometimes you will not have that opportunity to be by yourself and to be able to give the, the information that is needed for you to get support from, from the call center. We've also had women who have said that if you don't have money in your despite the fact that this is supposed to be a toll-free number, you cannot make a call. So it means that um, if, if you don't have the money in your phone, then you are also going to struggle to, to access uh, this command center. But also uh, one of the other problems that we've seen with the, the COVID pandemic is that uh, women who are in need of protection orders cannot get them because the courts are not functioning as um, they would do ordinarily. But also civil society has really been pushing to try to, to, to get the courts to issue virtual uh, protection orders so that you don't need to necessarily go into the courthouse to get the protection order, but maybe through calling the courts, you can be able to, to get a protection order. So we haven't seen that. So, 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 so that's also a challenge. And then, of course, um, another challenge is the provision of uh, shelter services uh, for survivors or women who are at risk of, uh, of gender-based violence. So um, in some cases, shelters are full. In some cases, uh, the shelters themselves are saying that they are not equipped to handle uh, new intakes in line with uh, COVID uh, restrictions. So they don't have the, ne the necessary space to isolate women, to test them, but also they don't have the personal protective equipment for their workers to be able to protect themselves as women come in who might be potentially positive for, for the COVID virus. So it has meant that some shelters have turned away uh, women because they can't 
handle new intakes as a result of the COVID pandemic, but others are also uh, full at this time. So, so those are some of the, the challenges that we have witnessed. And so when you ask the question, is, is government doing enough? I think there's more that could, could actually be done. But I also would want to say that the government has tried. And so as we are thinking of a response to the COVID pandemic, I think it is important that everyone should be involved and that we shouldn't be leaving it just to the government because uh, even personal protection should be, you know, the responsibility of individuals. But I also think that we need to see other players coming in and also buttressing the efforts of government. So you mentioned very interesting points there. At, at the beginning of your answer, you mentioned the issue of food parcels and you're wondering whether or not those food parcels were adequate enough to cater to the needs of the families. Out of curiosity, are there any sanitary towels provided in these food parcels for, you know, for women and girls? So in the food parcels that I have seen, no. I haven't seen sanitary wear. I've certainly seen tissues. I've seen soap. I have seen, um, in some cases, toothpaste and then food mainly. I haven't seen sanitary wear. And so you see, it goes to the question of how did we come to this kind of puzzle? Was there a gender analysis of the needs of households? Was there even an analysis of... You know, there are families that have very small children that need formula milk, and then there are families that don't need that. Those are essential services in times of a lockdown when you can't buy uh, nappies for your child because you're out of work. Uh, somebody must be providing that, but we don't see all those things in in the in the parcels. They are essentially food parcels. In terms of um, gender-based violence, aren't the women who are already admitted to the into these shelters exposed to secondary victimization by the service providers who might be at the at the shelters? Have there been any cases of secondary victimization once they get to the shelters? So I wouldn't doubt that maybe some women have experienced secondary violence at, at the shelters. And sometimes it is not necessarily the, the, the shelter staff, but it could also be other women who are in the shelters themselves. Because if you think about it, we are the products of the societies we come from. So our attitudes, our behaviors are shaped by what we have been taught consciously and unconsciously. So somebody who comes from a, a violent background sometimes internally internalizes violence and so their re- reaction to situations may be violent. So so it is it is very possible. But I must say that for the large part shelter services have really been by workers who are trained to handle cases of uh, gender-based violence because they are supposed to be providing that service. Um, and so it, it hasn't been rampant. Maybe that's the, the right word to say. I also know that some shelters, uh, as a result of government regulation, uh, do not accept uh, foreign women. And some have taken in foreign women and Issues of xenophobia have been reported, but they are also isolated. 
so so I think to the large part, shelter services are really geared towards protecting women who are in distress, but it is possible that that women can be violated there too. What are your recommendations to ensure that gender-based violence is reduced during the pandemic? Overall, I think we should all do our bit to ensure the protection of women and girls during the COVID uh, pandemic. And one of the things that I know that civil society has been doing or trying to do is to put inside the food parcels pamphlets that give information around where can you go to access services or what can you do if you are in a situation of violence. So, so a lot of information sharing and awareness raising is really needed to ensure that women who find themselves in violent spaces are able to, to access uh, the services. I also know that civil society that works directly with victims and survivors of gender-based violence have also been categorized as essential services and they've been able to go into communities to evacuate women who are at risk, but it is only the women who have been able to actually reach out to to, to civil society that get that support. But as I have said, in some situations, where do you put the women after you've evacuated them from their homes? If shelter services are full or unable to, to host them. Uh, so I think we need to to see a rethinking of shelter services in line with the, the COVID pandemic. So we definitely, the, the size of our shelter services uh, do not allow them to put women in quarantine. So we need to see the government thinking about what other alternatives can be put in place to ensure that Women in need of shelter are able to get the shelter services. We also need to think a little bit more around what we put in the food parcels. Maybe they should be care parcels as opposed to food parcels so that the items such as sanitary wear that we've been talking about also finds itself in those parcels. So, so I think we really need to, to rethink what is in the food parcels, so that we are really meeting the needs of, of the communities that we are serving. We also need to think about migrant women and other very vulnerable people who have been failing to access uh, the Social Relief of Distress Grant. How, how can we assist them? So it could be a South African without an ID because for you to access those uh, the, the the grant portals, they need your ID number. So we know that there are many people who don't have ID documents for whatever reason. It means that these people are not able to access those grants. So we need to think about other ways of also reaching out to to the many vulnerable people out there. We should also be thinking of other ways of looking into the homes to see if uh, women are safe. And I think the community health workers who are going into homes to do the testing of, of uh, the COVID testing, I think those community health workers should also be trained to identify signs of gender-based violence or child abuse. Or if they can't be trained, then I think they should also be paired with uh, maybe a social worker or someone who has the capacity to, to 
to identify signs of, of abuse in a home and then be able to take the necessary action and also the necessary referrals. So I think that is one thing that is important to do. There's also the need to to think about continually training our police and army as they are running the streets. At some points, they have also been the perpetrators of the violence. So I think we need to sensitize them on gender-based violence. We also need to sensitize them on identifying potential violent spaces so that they are also able to, to direct women to the, to the right services so that we try to deal with this problem of underreporting of, uh, of, of gender-based violence during the COVID pandemic. Thank you so much, Patience, for such an insightful discussion we've had. I'd just like to ask you if there are any um, concluding remarks or any personal reflections you have as far as um, gender-based violence and the COVID-19 pandemic is concerned. Well, uh, personally, I really think that the COVID pandemic has really exposed some of the challenges that we face as a country in terms of our response to to, to disasters. So, so today is COVID, maybe tomorrow it's a flood. The most vulnerable are always the, the same or they're always very similar. And women and girls are a large component of that group. And in any disaster situation, women and girls are at higher risk of, of violations because they are usually in, in fragile positions. We must think about a framework that can be used at any given time to ensure that we protect the most vulnerable in our communities in times of need. So we shouldn't be thinking on our feet every time there's there's, there's a, a disaster, but we should already have structures that are effective and that work to handle cases of, of violations of rights, particularly the rights of women and children. And I also think that we also need to think about how we do life as we come out of the COVID pandemic. We have learned and seen from this pandemic how vulnerable our populations are, how vulnerable women and, and girls are in, in times of, of crisis. It just highlights the vulnerability that they were already in. As we think of the country post-COVID, can we also take a, a gender lens around the interventions that we are going to be coming up with? So if it's issues around resuscitating the economy, we must think about women and and what that would mean for them. What are the measures are we going to put in place to ensure that the security of women in terms of economic security, social security is strengthened in the interventions that we are going to, to come out with. Um, we need to also put a lot of effort to researching responses to, to the COVID pandemic for women and girls. So um, we've been receiving calls to the uh, GBV command center, for example. How have these calls uh, been uh, responded to? What were the challenges that we faced uh, in responding to, to these calls and so forth? So we need to do that kind of research so that we understand our situation better. And also uh, we improve the facilities that we have so that um, 
we protect uh, the rights of those that are most vulnerable all the time. I, I really think that we should be learning a lot of lessons from the COVID epidemic. And if uh, indications are that it is here to stay for a while, then I think uh, how we are going to start living our lives again is going to be important to ensure that uh, certain segments of the population are are really taken care of. And I also think that it is important uh, for us as a country to remember that as South Africa, you know, we are signatory to many uh, human rights treaties which uh, speak specifically to the protection of, uh, of refugees and migrants that are living within our country or within the borders of our country. I think we also need to really think about uh, uh, how we... We cater for the needs of uh, non-South Africans that are living in South Africa to ensure that uh, in times of crisis, they also do not become uh, destitute and very vulnerable. Thank you so much, Patience, for that. It was lovely having you for today's discussion. Thank you, Tatenda. I also enjoyed uh, speaking to you. I do speak too too much, I do sometimes, but I... (laughs) I enjoyed it nonetheless. This has been Africa Rights Talk with me, Tatenda Musina Hamai. Join us in our other episodes as we continue to explore other human rights issues.